Well, as Charles mentioned, um, this Sunday has been designated the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday for 2015. And the fact that we even need to have a day dedicated to the sanctity or the sacredness of human life speaks volumes about the depravity of our culture, doesn't it? Russell Moore said it this way in an article published last year called Why I Hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which is kind of a thought-provoking title. He said, I hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I'm reminded that as I'm preaching, there are babies warmly nestled in wombs who won't be there tomorrow. I'm reminded that there are children, maybe even blocks from my pulpit, who will be slapped, punched, and burned with cigarettes before nightfall. And if you don't think that happens here in Kirksville, you need to wake up, because it does. I'm reminded that there are elderly men and women languishing away in loneliness, their lives pronounced to be a waste. I hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I'm reminded that we have to say things to one another that human beings should not have to say. Mothers shouldn't kill their children. Fathers shouldn't abandon their babies. No human life is worthless, regardless of skin color, age, disability, or economic status. You shouldn't have to say those things to people. The very fact that these things must be proclaimed is a reminder of the horrors of this present darkness. But, beloved, just because we hate having to say these things doesn't mean that we should stop saying them. The need is great, the darkness is even greater, but God is greater still. And he's able to use our faithful witness to the truth to change hearts and minds. And in light of that, I'd like to read this morning a few verses from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. If you want to turn there, John chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 1. John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, the physical water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him 
will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, this might seem like an odd passage to use in the context of abortion and the sanctity of human life, but I want to bring out a few things from this account that I trust will apply to us here this morning. Specifically, I want to share three truths that we can glean from this passage that apply directly to us as pro-life followers of Christ who want to stand up and speak out against abortion in the midst of a culture, culture that is growing increasingly hostile to such a stance. And the first truth is this. We see in this passage a model for how we ought to approach and interact with those on the opposite side of the abortion issue from us, namely with compassion and mercy. Whether it's a woman who has already had an abortion or a woman who is considering one, or perhaps it's anyone, male or female, who vehemently disagrees with the pro-life position, what should our attitude be towards them? What should our interactions with them be characterized by. And considering Jesus' example here in this passage, I would argue that our attitudes and interactions ought to be characterized by compassion and mercy. And friends, this is not always going to be easy. Because of the heinousness of the sin of abortion, there can be a tendency to recoil at the people who are involved in its propagation. But it ought not be that way for followers of Christ. Our response ought to be reaching out to them in mercy and compassion, just as the Lord Jesus did here with this Samaritan woman. Jesus, being a Jew, was not supposed to be conversing with a Samaritan, right? In fact, in verse 9, it tells us that Jews at this time had no dealings with Samaritans at all. But that didn't stop Jesus. Not only was this a Samaritan woman, though, this was a Samaritan woman who was a notorious sinner, flagrant sinner. According to verse 18, she had been married five times before, and she was currently shacking up with potential husband number six. And living in a small town like she did, everyone would have known this woman's history. Everyone. And more than likely she would have been ostracized because of it. But she was not ostracized by Jesus. Here, the perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly glorious Lord of creation comes into contact with a notorious sinner, and instead of recoiling from her, He reaches out to her with mercy. Her sin, now get this, her sin didn't keep Jesus away. It drew him to her in compassion. The whole have no need of a physician. 
right? Can the same be said of us when it comes to our attitudes and interactions with those on the opposite side of this issue? It ought to. Because at the end of the day, the only reason why we stand where we do today is because of the unearned, unmerited, undeserved mercy and compassion that God had on us. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Titus 3. He said that we ought to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why? For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We also once were foolish ourselves, but he saved us. And whenever you go out to put flags up or hold a pro-life sign up by the side of the road or hand out tracts or whatever, there are going to be people driving by who hate what you're doing. They do. They're going to curse you and they're going to shake their fist at you. But you need to remember when that happens, that the only reason why you are the person putting the flags up or holding the sign up and not the person is in the car is the grace of God. It's the only reason. So next time someone drives by and yells something at you or gives you the finger, because it'll happen, you can just smile and say, there but for the grace of God go I. Because it's literally true. And that ought to affect our attitudes and our interactions with those who disagree with us on this issue or any other issue for that matter. Truth number two. We learn from this passage that it's right to expose and draw attention to people's sin. It's right to do that. There are many people today in our culture, including even many professing Christians who would say that we shouldn't put flags and signs up. We shouldn't pass out tracts about abortion on campus or at the fair later in the year. All it does is make people feel guilty, and we shouldn't be doing that. It's not loving to confront people about their sin. Judge not, right? People love that one. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ was the most loving person who ever walked the face of the earth. And he confronted people about their sin all the time. All the time. Just read the Gospels. He didn't shy away from telling this Samaritan woman to go call her husband when he knew good and well that the guy she was living with was not her husband. He shined a light right on her sin, you see. And I think this can be especially needful with something like abortion because the abortion industry thrives on deception and hiddenness. Just think of the deception that goes on. When the baby is wanted, it's a child. When it's unwanted, it's a fetus. 
Abortion doesn't kill a baby. It simply terminates a pregnancy. In front of the cameras, pro-choicers will say that they want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. That's the mantra that you hear. We want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. And then behind closed doors, they'll perform 1.2 million abortions this year. Now let's be honest. If you're doing something over a million times a year, it ceased being rare a long time ago. (laughs) Right? Come on. And then on top of the deception, the abortion industry thrives because it keeps things hidden. You know, don't let those pregnant girls see an ultrasound. Put those graphic signs away. They're offensive, right? We wouldn't want anyone to actually see what happens in an abortion. Keep it hidden. Keep it secret in the dark corner. No, it's right to shine a light on the reality of abortion. It's loving to confront and expose an industry that has done untold harm to not only the children who have been killed by it, but untold harm to the mothers and doctors and others involved in it. But the question is this, what is the goal in confronting and exposing sin? What's the point, ultimately? Yes, shine a light on sin, but why? For Jesus, the goal in confronting this Samaritan woman about her sin was to direct her to himself as the ultimate answer to her deepest needs. And that ought to be our goal as well, which leads right into the last thing I want us to see in this passage this morning. Truth number three, the ultimate answer to the deepest needs of fallen sinners is the person of Jesus Christ and the living water that only he can give. Yes, Jesus confronted this Samaritan woman about her sin, but that wasn't the main point of his meeting with her. It wasn't. His goal wasn't simply to get her to clean up her act, but to change her heart. The real problem here wasn't her failed relationships, but her failed attempt to find real satisfaction in something other than knowing God. She didn't need relationship counseling. She needed living water. And if she got a drink of that, the relationship issues would take care of themselves. And as bad as abortion is, beloved, and it is unspeakably horrible, it is. But it is ultimately just a symptom of a deeper problem. John Piper has said that sin is what you do when you are not satisfied in God. And consequently, abortion is simply the outward manifestation of an inward problem of a sinful human heart that is not satisfied in God, but is in rebellion against him. Human beings are created by God for a relationship with God, and nothing but that will satisfy. But because humanity is in rebellion against God, everyone is looking for satisfaction somewhere else, meaning, purpose, to fill up the emptiness. And one of the primary ways that people do that is through intimate relationships. Most of the time, self-centered intimate relationships. 
And when that intimate relationship leads to an unintended pregnancy, it's no wonder that the child is seen not as a blessing, but as a barrier to the mother and or father's personal fulfillment. Right? Didn't count on this. That's not what we were looking for. This is going to put a damper on things. This doesn't fit into my life plan. And in that situation, abortion is basically a foregone conclusion. Because what do you do with a barrier? You move it out of the way, right? So what is the answer? The answer is the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes people from the inside out. That's the answer. That transforms men and women from being self-centered to God-centered. From lovers of self to lovers of other people. Or to say it another way, using the passage before us, the answer is a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in drinking of the living water that only he can give. Jesus said, whoever, whoever drinks of the living water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life, overflowing, overflowing. And for the person who has been satisfied by that living water, abortion becomes unthinkable because your entire life now is taken up by wanting to be pleasing to the one who reached out to you in mercy and compassion at such great cost to himself. So yes, let's work, let's pray tirelessly for the laws to be changed regarding abortion in this country, amen. But let us also work and pray tirelessly for the gospel to go forth in power in such a way that the hearts of men and women far and wide are changed into lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's confront and expose the sin of abortion with flags and signs and tracts, absolutely. But let us also open our mouths and invite sinners to drink of the living water that only Jesus can give. Because that living water can do what no external law can do. It can change people from the inside out. And when that happens, you see, when that happens, it's not only the children who are physically saved from the horrors of abortion, but the parents who are spiritually saved from an eternity without God. And seeing both of those things happen ought to be our heart's desire in the year ahead. In that same article that I referenced earlier, Russell Moore ends by saying this, I also love Sanctity of Human Life Sunday when I think about the fact that I serve a congregation with ex-orphans all around, adopted into loving families. I love to reflect on the men and women who serve every week in pregnancy centers for women in crisis. And I love to see men and women who have aborted babies find their sins forgiven, even this sin, and their consciences cleansed by Christ. We'll always need Christmas as a reminder of the birth of our Lord. We'll always need Easter as a reminder of his resurrection. But I hope, please, Lord, someday soon, that sanctity of human life day is unnecessary. Amen.